0: Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Princeton University Press. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today, I'm joined by Finn Brunton, Associate Professor in the Department of Media, Culture and Communication at New York University. Finn is the author of several books, including Spam, A Shadow History of the Internet, and co-author of Communication and Obfuscation, A User's Guide for Privacy and Protest. Today, I'm talking to Finn about his latest book, Digital Cash, The Unknown History of the Anarchists, Utopians and Technologists. Built cryptocurrency. Finn, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Finn, I'm going to begin with a really obvious question What is cryptocurrency?
1: Uh, It's actually a tremendously difficult question to answer. Um, The wonderful uh, technology critic Adam Greenfield says that cryptocurrency is. Um, the perhaps the only uh, contemporary digital technology of widespread consequence that even highly technical people find very difficult to understand um, it's a, it's a series of Deeply counterintuitive things that are all stacked on top of each other. So this is all to say that there's no there's no reason to feel, you know, uh, ashamed by being confused by it. Um, it is is a very very confusing and counterintuitive thing. Um, a a cryptocurrency is a digital token that is meant to pass as money. And we can talk in more depth about sort of how and why that idea um, comes into play. But in order to make that digital token work, um, it has to have some mechanism whereby it can keep track of who owns it and whether or not they can exchange it with someone else. And so that means that it's a digital token that's backed by a um, what is what is called an append-only distributed ledger system, which is basically just a massive list of who owns what, who has the rights to what, which everyone on the network keeps track of, and to which new information can be added, but never removed or changed. So those components all together produce this uh, unique cryptocurrency object.
0: There's a very clear distinction between cryptocurrency and electronic money.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And this is, in some ways, one of the kind of most peculiar problems to have to think through when we're thinking about what cryptocurrency is, which is that, um, of course, electronic money is immensely widespread, has been around for decades and decades. But that is something that can function much more in terms of uh, what we might think of as as credit, right? Where there is a um, some sort of shared set of accounts between various institutions. And, you know, I, you know, insert my chip and pin card or swipe my mag stripe card and authorize some money to be moved from this account to that account. And, and it's done. And that's electronic money. And the vast majority of money is actually electronic in one form or another. What makes cryptocurrencies different is that they are not trying to replicate money as such. They're not trying to replicate credit. They're trying to replicate cash. And they're trying to do in digital form the really unique thing that cash does, which is that when you think about <clears throat> when you think about cash as we would actually carry it, it's an object which has to be able to prove itself to us and to the person that we are transacting it with, that it is what it appears to be, that it's a, a valuable thing, that it's its currency, legal tender, that you can then you know pass on to someone else as you're if you're getting paid in it, and it has to do that. It has to be able to prove itself because of the fact that it's not relying on us to prove that we are who we are. Our credit cards rely on our ability to verify our identity, to prove that we are the person who should have access to this credit. Cash proves itself in hand. When I pay you in cash, you don't need to know anything about me. I don't need to know anything about you, because the cash is able to carry its own authority as a token of value. And that is a pretty tall order for a physical currency, and it's an immensely difficult problem for a digital currency. And that's where the real challenge of building a cryptocurrency comes in.
0: What we're talking about is a pre-authenticated form of currency that's similar to cash.
1: Yes, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yes,
0: exactly. There's no hiding the fact that you're an academic, but digital cash is really like no textbook I've ever read, and it's no ordinary telling of history either who do you hope to reach with digital cash? And why should we care about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin?
1: We need to care about cryptocurrencies to some degree because a lot of people already do in various ways, including sometimes people who are trying to like propose investment schemes or come up with alternate transaction mechanisms that route around countries for better or worse. Um, and increasingly we're starting to see these systems being matters of interest for larger and larger institutions, um, for major social network companies, for large financial institutions. So on that level, we are, um, as we are about so many things these days, obligated to care about this seemingly esoteric technical topic because a great deal of money and energy is being sunk into it. For me, the the hope for this book is that it can be addressed to the widest possible audience. That was that was my hope when I was writing it. And, and it's it's. I'm very curious to kind of see if that actually worked in practice. I wanted to write um, a book about, a book that would be able to be read with interest by the people who are already thoroughly familiar with that technical world, but also by the general reader for whom all of this was novel and strange, um, that would be able to kind of walk them through all of these uh, sometimes quite, Um, uh, esoteric and counterintuitive and opaque technologies and at the same time introduce them to this strange underworld of intellectuals and authors and artists and oddballs who were all instrumental in bringing these things to market.
0: I guess the principle in the idea of developing digital cash is this search for data security and a means of effectively encrypting this data. We all understand the necessity for that, and if I can pose a rather naive question, why can't we just leave that up to governments, banks, and and similar institutions?
1: It's it's not a naive question at all, to be honest, because there's there's you know a really good argument to be made for what is the necessity of these these kinds of technologies, and where does this incredible level of focus come from on? producing data security, and in particular in relation to things like money. And while we can talk about some of the other, you know, sort of more unusual and and perhaps uh, militant reasons for for wanting things to be like this, it's really worthwhile, I think, to remember the context within which um, encryption, uh, digital encryption, Began to emerge as as both a discipline in academic research and computer science, but also as a practical technology that people were trying to apply, much of which was in the context of activism, um, of people who found themselves um, in danger from their own governments, um, from the very institutions that were notionally supposed to protect them. So when we start to look back at the development of encryption for personal information, for things like sending email, we see the roots in things like the anti-nuclear movement on the East Coast of the United States in the 1970s and 80s. Um, we start to see roots in people who had uh, come out of the context um, of protesting, again, in the U.S., for example, the Vietnam War, um, who were already seen as suspicious um, by uh, organizations within the U.S. government, um, who who thought that their future activities were being monitored, and who were trying to find ways to protect their privacy, not just, though, for their present circumstances, but because this small cohort of people who were working on digital encryption understood that a digital society was a society that would actually be far more vulnerable to surveillance and with surveillance to the management of the people being surveilled. So a really good way to think about this that also links nicely into the problem of money in particular was the research that was being done by a uh, computer scientist named Paul Armour in the 1970s, um, who was very much kind of part of the sort of greater uh, military industrial computing complex in the United States, and who at one point had been tasked with a group of other researchers um, to develop the optimal surveillance and control system in an effort to essentially um, you know, figure out a scenario for where the future of the then Soviet Union might go. And the model on which they settled was a state-managed electronic funds transfer system. And as you pointed out, the profound danger of a payment system becoming digital was that it provides constant access through the very things that you need to do to ensure your own survival, like get access to shelter, buy food, um, you know, get tickets to places, be able to have access to basically all the goods and services of a society, to make that access contingent on using a system which provides, again, not just your location, not just the time at which you did something, but also much more detailed information about what precisely it was that you did. For Paul Armour and others who were looking forward at the threat of future surveillance, a, a poorly thought through electronic funds transfer system could function both as a way to produce immense dossiers of extremely detailed information from which many, many other inferences could be made about matters ranging from health to relationships to political beliefs and affiliations to philosophical commitments but also could then be used to act on the basis of those inferences to manage the people who are part of such a system. So from Paul's dystopian perspective in the 1970s, He said, imagine the next step for an electronic funds surveillance system. It is one which will not only track what you buy and when and where and produce these very detailed documents of your movements, but will also, for example, be able to not let you buy things. So if the state has automatically decided on the basis of its inferences from data that you should not be allowed to travel, then you will not be able to purchase tickets to places. If the state has decided that this book is not for you, your money is no good for buying that book and you will be turned away at the point of sale if you want to understand the dystopian future of surveillance, you don't need to imagine prospective scenarios. Just look at how the most vulnerable populations are treated. We can likewise see exactly this kind of model that Armour was so afraid of playing out in things like how uh, credit ratings are assessed, right? And like how On that basis, choices are made about your ability um, in the U.S. context, your ability to get health insurance, um, your ability to get access to a huge variety of necessary and sometimes life-saving things is increasingly managed through a process of collecting and aggregating and monitoring data. In the final analysis, part of the answer to your question is that we have to recognize not just the imminent threats that could come about through failing to manage our privacy and our control over our data, but also the temptation that that poses to exert power over populations that don't have any ability to seek redress.
0: Here's a good question. What is a cypherpunk?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A cypherpunk was um, a member of a a uh, quite small and relatively loosely defined um, group of uh, primarily programmers, software developers, um, engineers, and very, very serious but non academic amateur cryptographers, um, largely based in the Bay Area of California. Um, from the uh, 1980s to the 1990s. They originally received that name from uh, a writer and uh, programmer named Jude Milan, uh, who wrote a fantastic sort of semi-fictional article chronicling her encounters with the real members of this movement. And in the course of doing that, she nicely summarizes that the cypherpunks were an attitude And in some cases, a larger ideology, which was that the technology of cryptography, once we had figured out how to create cryptographic systems that were so robust that ordinary people with ordinary computers could write in uncrackable codes, would enable the redistribution of power on a really unprecedented scale, um, would be able to uh, enable new social forms um, of anonymous but reputational networks of people, people who would be closely allied, who could trust each other without ever knowing who each other really were, Um, people who could create marketplaces and transactions that would be essentially undiscoverable by any outside observer, including the state, and in particular A long term fascination with the idea of using these systems to begin to create voting systems, black markets, and indeed entire alternate societies that would exist completely in bodiless form on the Internet and would uh, more and more undercut the existing social structures that we had in favor of their own sort of futuristic dream so the beautiful thing about the cypherpunks in particular was that they were a group who had adopted their name from a science fiction genre cyberpunks combined with cyphers who were actually seeking to bring a science fictional vision of the future about in practice and the extraordinary things the extent to which they succeeded
0: to an outsider this whole world is a very strange blend of science fiction technology philosophy and, and activism too I wonder does it have its origins in well what is almost a constitutional basis for the American tradition of liberalism would that be a reasonable starting point that's that's such a
1: fascinating question um, I, I think I think it, it could but I think there's actually a, um, an even more uh, kind of uh, pertinent context for it, which is the, um, that it's, it's, it's not only kind of an only in America story, but it's actually more specifically an only in California story. Um, and it's one where to be clear, there was like a, a widespread, um, you know, there were international, uh, sort of elements of the cypherpunk movement. Um, and many of the kind of people who've gone on to become the kind of most notorious and, and interesting members of it, including people like Julian Assange, um, were, were not sort of from this exact milieu. But the the kind of heart and soul of the movement is not just American but Californian, and not just Californian, but like within this very specific zone of the Bay Area, um, of, of the area where Silicon Valley intersects with San Francisco and Berkeley. And the reason why I want to emphasize that is that it's it's a space that is in the tradition of American liberalism, but more specifically. Um, the kind of bizarre, uh, like, hyper-distilled version of it um, of Californian libertarianism, right, which took many of the core tenets of what we could think of as classical liberal political philosophy and then fused them with really specific interpretations of economics and then combined that with a starry-eyed, glorious dream of a future of radical abundance and the transcendence of human limitations, um, which lay on the immediate far side of the libertarian revolution as they saw it happening.
0: This is where we start to talk about extropians or extropianism. What is it and who are they? I think you've probably already partially answered that question. But how does that concept differ from, say, futurism and the futurists?
1: The extropians were a futurist utopian movement, but, and this is kind of what I think distinguishes them from many other sort of threads of, of futurist utopianism that we can trace back through the 20th century and back through the 19th. They had a very, very concrete set of philosophical beliefs and they had a way, a plan for how to bring those beliefs about through, uh, the creation of new financial mechanisms, among other things. Um, So they had this very self-reflexive attitude about how they would be able to make use of new kinds of money and new kinds of economics as ways to spur this transformation that they wanted to see in the world. So the core of extropianism was to make a philosophical and personal commitment to the idea of the boundless increase, of intelligence of longevity of in a kind of grander sense and this is where the name comes from the complexification of the universe right so like rather than the sort of gradual dissolution into entropy they would instead be this kind of like upward rocketing arrow um, of knowledge of lifespan of available space materials and energy um, that would explode the complexity of life on Earth out into space um, and not incidentally make it possible for them to uh, all become you know, immensely successful and live forever.
0: It's a very positive view of the future, and I was struck by a little phrase in the book regarding the Extropians. Their future's so bright, they need to wear shades
1: they made a, you know, somewhat (laughs) tongue-in-cheek mock-up of a future currency that their extropian society was going to produce. And on the reverse, um, you know, two of the key sort of extropian theorists, including kind of the key formulator of all the the central ideas, Max Moore, um, both appear, (laughs) but they appear wearing sunglasses and like waving out at the audience, like rock stars. Um, The extent to which they made optimism into a subject of of rigorous and almost militant philosophical commitment um, is, is something that's kind of truly extraordinary. And I think really also speaks to an economic moment and a cultural moment as it was unfolding in that corner of California in the 1990s, um, but which turned out to have an extraordinarily kind of persistent afterlife. And it's through the Extropian <laughs> community that many of the people who are part of the cypherpunk world and many of the people who all come together around the project of uh, Bitcoin all begin to kind of take shape. So it's really interesting to look back from what Bitcoin is now into the the vision of being able to build new kinds of markets and new kinds of financial instruments that will so accelerate the process of innovation that all of the breakthroughs that the extropians forecast will happen before they die so that they can then, you know, live live forever in our sort of visionary future.
0: Well, I'd like to talk about a few more technical issues or areas where the technical starts to encroach on the, the philosophical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write about the challenge of making digital data valuable, and you're not talking about the way Google might collect data on your shopping habits and selling that data for profit, how and why does this particular kind of digital data become valuable? It's a kind of odd thing
1: to, to think about, this idea of how do we make digital objects valuable. I put it that way. I put it in terms of thinking about objects because I, I want to kind of shift the way we think about it a tiny bit. Think about a song, like a digital audio file, the song this like specific unit of music, and then think about what happened to the music industry over the decade plus, as people realized that computers, and indeed most kinds of, you know, digital um, like objects and appliances in general, are actually more or less perfect copying machines. You know, they're systems that which are actually in their, their very design, for completely functional reasons, um, systems that incorporate tremendously sophisticated ways to make perfect copies of digital objects. Um, So when we talk about data, we're actually talking about something that is along with whatever properties it might have, almost impossibly easy to reproduce. So you started to run into all of these problems as we've all seen unfold over the last 15 years, where media in particular books, movies, television, music, games, and so on, um, suddenly went from being things which were precious and somewhat difficult to produce, like relatively scarce, their scarcity somewhat manageable, into something which could be trivially and indeed accidentally reproduced At virtually no cost, in virtually unlimited numbers over a global distribution system. So with that in mind, then, think about if you were to just kind of as a thought experiment, think to yourself, how would I go about trying to make digital money? then obviously our first thought would be, well, what's to stop us from, you know, control C, control V-ing it, you know, just copy and pasting that over and over again, because that's one thing that our machines are tremendously good at. So part of the challenge for people who sought to build digital cash systems was to find a way to make digital data valuable. And to do that, they had to find a way to make digital data, the stuff which is by its very nature meant to be easily transmitted, easily stored, easily copied, easily reproduced into something where you could know that the one that you were looking at was unique in the way that you can know, or at least by and large, trust that when you look at a bank note, when you you pass a piece of cash to someone else, that you are passing the only single one piece of that cash, which is exactly like it anywhere in the world, that there are many, many others that are similar to it, but none of them have precisely the same serial number, precisely the same information that you are holding a truly unique object there. So how would you produce an uncopyable digital object? Something that could be easily transacted, easily sent from person to person, but impossible for one person to copy once they had received it, or to, say, spend it multiple times, the same piece of of data.
0: That's sort of counterintuitive to the whole concept of the digital world. We're so used to things being able to be reproduced precisely or exactly is the the original object there seems to be a kind of contradiction in terms there
1: oh yes absolutely one of the reasons why cryptocurrencies in general um, are often so hard to understand is that to go with that counterintuitive project they had to build a profoundly counterintuitive and extremely complex machine that would be able to secure those pieces of data as it were the digital objects, those chunks of information that could pass as money, the digital world as we know it rests on the capacity to make copies. So when we talk about the sort of headache-inducing strangeness of blockchain systems, of cryptocurrencies, we are partially talking about having to reinvent the digital world on the inside, as it were, to produce something that would never function in the way that our readily copyable digital objects
0: do. That actually leads me quite conveniently to the next question, which is about blockchain. And it's linked with the way you create value within this cryptocurrency system. What's the connection between those two? And in very simple terms, can you explain what blockchain is?
1: A good way, I think, to to think about what the blockchain is, is as an archive, Um, and, and it, and this, this will kind of, one of the things that I find most mind blowing about this is how, in a sense, this turns into money at a certain point. But to, to begin with the challenge of,
0: that's the question that most people would want me to ask, how does it turn, how does it become money or something like a trade with other people?
1: So the, the original, uh, structure of the blockchain, again, without kind of going into too much technical detail, um, is, is a way to establish a distributed architecture of trust. So distributed in the sense that something that many people or many machines can all be involved in, um, that they can all sit on the same network, that they don't need to know each other in advance. They don't need to have what Um, Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of the original version of Bitcoin, um, calls a trusted third party, for which we can think, for example, of the way that um, when we engage in any kind of everyday, say, retail transaction, our trusted third party is, for instance, Visa, you know, like the party that can that I can trust and the merchant can trust has facilitated the transaction
0: between us. And the company that takes one or two or 3% of the transaction along the way.
1: (laughs) Yes. And also the company that, that is definitely getting something out of it in return for facilitating this process and maintaining that trust. So what Nakamoto and, and many kind of precedent projects and researchers, he didn't kind of invent this out of whole cloth, but, what, what many people had sort of sought to figure out was, is there a way on a digital network that we can have some system by which A whole lot of people who don't know each other can all trust in a particular record so when you hear record you know you can again think of something like a ledger right so in kind of a toy example of this imagine a situation where you know i am trying to uh build some kind of group investment thing i'm trying to get some sort of project off the ground Um, so me and a whole lot of other people we're all going to put our money in together but we don't know each other. We've all just sort of met online in various ways. We all jointly want to see this thing exist in the world. We exist where we live in lots of different countries. You know, it would be tremendously onerous to go through the legal process of creating those trusted third parties between us. Isn't there a way that we can somehow have a shared record of how much money everyone has put into this that we can all jointly trust? No one has changed, right? Like No one has gone back and added another zero into how much they contributed to everything. So the answer to this in the case of the blockchain is to come up with a system in which as we engage in transactions, right, those transactions are all logged and registered and verified as having been transactions that we have made with money that was ours to spend that we haven't been, uh, as we were talking about earlier, copying money, we haven't been like spending the same pieces of money multiple times. Um, We have instead engaged in all these transactions and it's all above board and the math all checks out, right? Like the books balance. The reason why it's called a blockchain has to do with what happens next, which is that we group all of the recent sets of transactions, say everything that's happened in the last 10 minutes, into a single chunk of data, a block, we can think of it as, right? Like, so all of these different registers of I credit three, you debit three, other people are engaging in other transactions back and forth, all of those things get stacked together. And then, and this is kind of the most difficult and counterintuitive part. So I hope it's all right if I just kind of keep it in almost a metaphorical way. Um, And then this block is submitted to everyone who is keeping track of the ledger across the network, all these strangers who don't know each other, for a kind of review, for a kind of computational challenge. So everyone jointly engages in this challenge, trying to solve what is effectively an arbitrary problem that's based on the data that's in this block. That arbitrary problem is of a very specific level of difficulty.
0: So is this some kind of computational challenge that someone has to solve, like a problem that needs to be solved, and therefore the value rests in the solution to that problem?
1: It's often framed that way, right? That like Bitcoin is often discussed as something where the value is produced through solving these challenges. And indeed, Nakamoto refers to the the computational work of trying to solve these challenges as mining and the people who do it as miners. And then the results that they produce generate new Bitcoins that can then be you know, owned by the person who is the first person to solve that challenge. And that's their reward for trying to solve this uh, hard problem. the The specific nature of the challenge is actually something called a partial hash collision problem. A partial hash collision problem is a way of trying to produce a string of new data that is based on existing data that you can't predict in advance what that new string will look like, but other people can easily verify that that new string corresponds to the data that you used to produce it. So imagine for instance, um, like a a challenge that I might set you in which I would say, Um, And this may sound arbitrary and ridiculous, but there's a reason for that, um, in which I might say, let's take uh, let's take this book. And I want you to um, find a sentence for me in this book that contains the following letters in the following order. And so you would then kind of like set yourself to this mechanical task of going through the book and trying to find that sentence. Um, And then once you had found it, I could easily verify that sentence was in the book. You had solved this challenge, even if that seems like a completely ridiculous waste of time. The mathematical challenge is very much that same kind of waste of time. The sole reason why it works the way it does Solving partial hash collision problems does not produce any new data about that data. It doesn't solve a mathematical challenge. It doesn't teach us anything new about the universe. All it does is prove that your computer spent a certain amount of time and energy on trying to solve this problem. So to return to your question, is this what makes Bitcoin valuable? No.
0: I was expecting the answer to be yes, but... (laughs) (laughs)
1: No, exactly. Because when we think of labor, we think of labor as being something when we think of work, you know, which I'm which I'm sort of using in the sense of computational work here, right? Like there's, there's watts of electricity, and there's time and uh, money that you are putting into a computer system that is going to try to solve these problems, we think of the work as producing the value. Instead, what the work produces is a Reliable proof of how hard it is, how much computational work it takes to confirm that block of transactions is now added to the ledger, is now settled and legitimate. And that's now the arrangement of who owns what. And we all agree that that is now an accurate picture of how much Bitcoin is out there and the fact that there's no counterfeits and nobody is like cooking the books, nobody is manipulating who has what? So in other words, what that is actually produced is not value as such, but instead simply proof of scarcity, proof that there is still a limited amount of Bitcoin out there. And it's all uh, it's all it's all sort of going as planned, which you may think like, then how in God's name is that valuable? Well, it's valuable if you are trying to think of, if you are trying to convince a group of people that a digital currency can be trusted, right? That it can be trusted not to be artificially inflated, that it can be trusted not to be overproduced or double spent or counterfeited or forged. Um, If that is what you are trying to generate, then these uh, systems of mechanical difficulty are weirdly enough, one one pretty good way of going about it. The strange sort of perverse beauty of a system like Bitcoin is that it generates access to new chunks of Bitcoin. It gives people the rights to trade new Bitcoins in return for work, which everyone agrees, everyone understands is cosmically useless, contributes nothing, adds up to nothing, can be used for nothing, but only verifies that it was difficult and therefore that it is very unlikely that anyone has been able to manipulate the ledger.
0: It's kind of a barter system for the amount of energy expended in solving a partial hash collision computational problem. Is that a reasonable paraphrase?
1: Yes, I think I think you're absolutely right, except for the fact that it's it's a barter system in which the you can't, for for example, redeem uh, the bitcoins for that that computational work uh, in the way that you might be able to. For example, there have been many different projects over the years to build currencies that would be uh, priced in energy, right? So the idea was that you would be able to sort of barter on the basis that these tokens could then be turned over for some number of, you know, kilowatts of electricity. The thing to think about in some ways with, with Bitcoin, I think maybe the, a good analogical way to get at it is that it was designed bizarrely enough to be analogous to gold. So the idea was that you expend some amount of work to get the gold up out of the ground, But aside from the fact, you know, so set aside for the time being practical ways in which we can use gold, you know, for things like circuits and fillings and decoration and aesthetics, set all those things aside and just think of it as something which is very, very difficult and time consuming to get Um, and something where... You can, when you see gold, you can kind of easily verify that gold is what it appears to be through, you know, touching it, handling it, bending it, weighing it and biting it and so on. Um, but that you can also, in the course of doing those things, do them knowing that there is quite a small amount of gold in the world. Um, and there's very unlikely to be a great deal more anytime soon. Um, so for Bitcoin, this was the idea of using all of these uh ridiculously difficult arbitrary computational problems and this is why nakamoto refers to it as mining to create something that would be a sort of um, strange uh, digital analog to the idea of gold being something that is difficult and reliably scarce um, difficult to acquire and something which we can generally trust there will not be very much of around And that it is from this that the value comes. So in other words, and I I submit to you that this does not really make sense from the perspective of a lot of our conventional experience of economics. Um, But in other words, this is a, a monetary object whose value rests pretty much entirely on the fact that it is scarce. So then the real challenge becomes... Of course, ultimately, it only has the value that we give to it by engaging in transactions with it, you know, by accepting it and passing it on. So how do you go about translating a value that only comes from scarcity into something that people might actually use to exchange with one another?
0: Bitcoin has been described as a Ponzi scheme for distributing wealth. I think that came from the Washington Post, (laughs) but also as a foundational technology. How can it be described in both of these terms and yet still maintain its legitimacy?
1: That's such a fantastic question. Um, Bitcoin is a bizarre thing for us to try to behold, because it is simultaneously a whole set of tremendously interesting technologies, many of which we are seeing people start to take up and adopt in new contexts um, and spin off into new kinds of cryptocurrencies and blockchain systems, while also being a project that has been absolutely plagued with infighting, with confidence tricksters, with fraud, with price fixing, um, with all kinds of artificial inflation and manipulation of the price itself. So like Bitcoin is actually working more or less as designed, um, but around Bitcoin has fostered just the most extraordinary camp of fly-by-night scammers and hucksters and touts. So this is to say, I think that we can simultaneously see the really interesting aspects of what could be done with the blockchain system, right? To so like after all of our kind of like talking about it technically, just to pull back for a second and say, what would it mean to actually have a shared online record um, of, of contracts, of ownership, of co-ownership, um, of, of ways of getting access to all kinds of needful things, which all kinds of strangers could jointly agree that they were in fact able to trust that it was accurate, that it was true, that could dramatically change how we think about owning things, sharing things, um, communally working together in lots of different ways across countries, across languages. So that can be really, really promising. At the exact same moment that you can look at Bitcoin and even the the swamp of so-called initial coin offerings and other um, marvelously shady financial instruments, and see more or less uh, nothing but uh, nothing but fraud, hype, and inflated expectations.
0: Um, what do you think the future of Bitcoin is? Uh, I was uh, on the news last week. I saw a graph that traced the stock price, if I can call it that, of Bitcoin. And it traced the the path to the price of avocados. It's marvelous. uh, What drives the value and the fluctuations uh, of Bitcoin?
1: A lot of the value seems to be driven by um, a combination of media hype and uh, what there's increasing Really good evidence of deliberate attempts to manipulate the appearance of high volumes of trading in order to drive up the value. Bitcoin is a truly perverse um, financial object at this stage, in a way that I think many other cryptocurrencies have already learned from and are beginning to produce significantly, sort of you know, different, better, more thought-through uh, versions of of what the currency could be. But nonetheless, at this point, we now are stuck in a really bizarre situation where we have this um, massive digital sunk cost, right? Like people have put huge amounts of money into buying Bitcoins, into building vast Bitcoin mining rig facilities. Um, And now we are stuck in one of these like peculiar social situations where enough folks share certain consensual hallucinations about the nature of this value, that they are uh, fighting to, to sustain that and to get more widespread agreement about how it is supposed to be valuable, about how their investments are supposed to be made whole. So the future I see is a very rocky and complicated one. And In terms of things that will have a longer-term impact on society, I would urge us to look not necessarily at Bitcoin as such, but to instead see Bitcoin as what I think in many ways it is, the broken, bizarre, extremely idiosyncratic, alpha rollout version of something which will eventually be refined into something that actually works.
0: It sounds like a system in search of a critical mass. Would that be right?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. It, it is a system which needs widespread buy-in in order, on the part of many, many different people, buy-in both literal in the sense of people investing, but also figurative in the sense of people agreeing to to take it seriously and treat it as something that should be integrated into infrastructure. Um, and and it, I don't think honestly that it it quite has anything like that yet. However. There are many consequent projects which um, I I personally believe are uh, are, are able to learn from some of the uh, flaws and problems (laughs) inherent in the ideological baggage of this first version that will be able to produce significantly better results. We tend to remember technologies that succeed and not the enormous array of very similar things that usually came shortly before and did not work for a variety of often very good reasons. Um, but they were just as necessary to help to get something off the ground.
0: There's a couple of things I have to ask you. The black hole or the black hole club, can I call it a club? And yes, this use of a thing called a vocoder, it sounds like a contemporary composer's paradise <laughs> what is it? What is the Black Hole Club, and how do I become a member?
1: Oh, you and me both. Um, the Black Hole Club was uh, a vision of the future that Jude Millon outlined in the article in which she described the cypherpunks for the first time, in which she coined their name and introduced them to the world. And it was her fantasy of what a uh, a society which prized privacy and anonymity would look like Um, but envisioned as a club which would be a blast to spend time at I think Um, and part of the element of it which I love so much is that as these various characters that she meets are, are lurching around in these like giant full body robes with lifts in their shoes so you can't tell what their real height is and masks over their faces they are on the network with cameras live streaming what they look at and speakers mounted next to their own mouths. So other people are always speaking through them. You have no idea which voice is coming from which person. And she, in a beautiful detail, has those voices vocoder, the same technology that we use for producing, you know, like the vocals in Kraftwerk recordings. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's like kind of fed through a synthesizer so that you can never identify the human voice, but instead hear... Humans speaking as you know cellos and machines and whales. It's it's a wonderful kind of fantasy of a future society in which personal identity has become infinitely less important. Which is uh, something that I personally find very appealing.
0: Finn, there's so many questions that I still want to ask you. There's all sorts of areas that I'd like to look at. Things like uh, biostasis and the use of their cryptocurrency sometime in the future. But I want to thank you so much for today. Uh, There's a lot more to be heard about in this area. And uh, once again, thanks for your, well, enlightenment.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. This has been an absolute delight.
0: You've been listening to Finn Brunton talk about his latest book, Digital Cash, The Unknown History of the Anarchists, Utopians and Technologists Who Built Cryptocurrency. It's published by Princeton University Press and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. Thanks for listening. My name is Greg Dobbs.